Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shermer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. We had a glorious weekend here in Vancouver, weather-wise. It was spring cleaning time, so the garage got a complete overhaul. Uh, lots of cleaning, sorting, trips to the landfill, trips to the donation center, and to top it all off, my deep freeze died. So it was one of those kinds of weekends. Uh, thanks for listening in again this week, and as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or maybe with your friends and colleagues. Now, before we get started, I mentioned last week at the end of the show that I had an announcement about the podcast. Well, that announcement is that the Tom Schirmer podcast has officially joined the Teach Better Podcast Network. Now, if you're a lover of education podcasts, the Teach Better Network has a ton of them. Too many to individually list here, but there are just some great podcasts on that network. So if you want to check it out, Head over to teachbetter.com slash podcast to check out those podcasts that are on there. Now, personally, I'm really excited to join such a great team of educators out here creating content for you, the listeners. As you look at the vast array of podcasts on that network, I promise you there is something there for everyone. So I'd really encourage you to check it out. Again, teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Today, my guest is Jennifer Abrams. We focus primarily on how to prepare for and follow through on difficult conversations. In Assessment Corner, I'm going to focus on the understandings and maybe some of the misunderstandings of constructed response items and how specifically we can design more effective extended written response items. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. interview with Jennifer Abrams is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking you to please stop telling me how humble you are. Now, admittedly, this is a pet peeve of mine, so it's quite possible that I'm overreacting here, and maybe it's no big deal. But honestly, I cringe every time I see someone publicly say they're humbled. One of the things that I'm admittedly uncomfortable with about my current job is the amount of self-promotion I have to engage in. Well, of course, no one's forcing me to do it, so I don't have to. But generally, the work that I do and many others do involves making meaningful contributions to the discourse, uh, growing a base of credibility. So that leads to workshop opportunities and working with schools and districts and all of that. So when you're in that kind of business and you need to build a following, it can be a fine balance. Same with this podcast. Right? I mean, obviously, this podcast is another branch of how I can expand my reach, and I'm appreciative of all of you who listen each week, or most weeks, or you've listened once or twice, or whatever. But like anything, you know, I want to expand the listening audience and grow this podcast into something of substance. So I send out social media posts about episodes and guests and upcoming segments, and I've asked you as listeners to rate and review the show because that's how you move up the rankings, that's how your podcasts get noticed. It's an unfortunate system, but that's how it works, and I don't control that, so it's got to be done. You know, all of us out here promoting and trying to build a following are walking a fine line. If you post and promote too little, you kind of fade into oblivion. You know, all the brand building experts talk about how consistency in posting is, is what's most important. But on the other hand, if you post and promote too much, 
Some see that as obnoxious, self-aggrandizing, and so on, right? So in some ways you can't win, so you just have to do what feels right and what feels right to you, right? And and stay within your self-determined limits or your comfort zone, where that's concerned. Now, I have to admit, I am a little envious of those who are just relentlessly pursuing followers and posting relentlessly and show absolutely no restraint uh, in what they sort of what they post on social media. I mean, good for them. Uh, I I wish I had that in me, but, and I feel like I post a lot, but uh, there are some people who take it to another level. But for me, there is one word or phrase that so many use to try to combat this feeling, and that is the word humbled. This, <laughs> this is my ax to grind. You see, I know the strategy. If I can self-promote, but while doing so, I can tell you how humble I am, then I can come across, or at least attempt to come across, as being somewhat deferential in some weird way. But for me, faux humility is worse than arrogance. I honestly would rather you be an arrogant ass than try to come off as some aw shucks, who me kind of person. At least you're being honest. The whole faux humility thing is a complete fraud. You see, the word humble means having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Posting and tweeting about how humble you are is the exact opposite of that. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't celebrate great things, and I'm not saying you shouldn't post about it. Go for it. Absolutely. If you feel grateful, excited, honored, happy, pumped, stoked, whatever, post about it. Just not humbled. Like Sometimes I'm tempted to post, listen to this, I'm sometimes tempted to post, wow, I can't believe how humble I am, just to see if anybody gets the joke. Well, maybe one day I will as a kind of social media experiment. <laughs> if you were truly humbled, you wouldn't say anything. Now listen to this. Here's a I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand this. This is not a real tweet. I manufactured this. This is about no one. So if there's any sort of coincidence here, it's, it's purely arbitrary. Okay, this is in reference to nobody. But listen to this post, and let's make a few tweaks to it, right? Listen to this. I'm so humbled to be keynoting to the 500 educators at the conference in California this week. Do you hear that? Humbled? That's actually me boasting about the size of the crowd I'm speaking to, right? I want you to know I'm a big deal, right? A simple tweak to that post would be completely different in its appearance and its tone and its message. You could say, I'm excited to be keynoting at the conference in California this week. Or even just say I'm excited to be presenting at the conference in California this week. Because why did I say keynoting? Because I want you to know I'm a big deal. But that tweak, I'm excited to be keynoting at the conference this week. Nothing wrong with that. You're excited. You're allowed to be excited. You should be. It's a great honor that a school or a district or a jurisdiction has put their trust in you and that they think you have a message that will resonate with folks and, and you should be proud of that. It is an honor. Shout it from the hilltops. Just don't call yourself humble while you're doing it. I have all kinds of time for authenticity. 
As long as you don't take it to the extreme, I can tolerate a lot from people if I know or suspect that they are authentically being themselves. You know, when things become a little too performative or manufactured, that's when I start to cringe. And that is when I'm out. Again, the issue for me is singularly the use of the word humble, because a truly humble person would rarely ever use that word. If or when you you are truly humbled by something, then, I don't know, just say thank you, or I appreciate that, or you're very kind, or whatever. (laughs) Look, I get that this is my issue. Maybe some of you are probably thinking I'm making too much of it. And you know what? You might be right. Uh, and, and look, no one made me the social media post police. So really, in the grand scheme of things, who cares what I have to say about it? But listen to this from Alfred Adler. Quote, We should not be astonished if in the cases where we see an inferiority complex we find a superiority complex more or less hidden. Let me say that one more time. Alfred Adler. We should not be astonished if in the cases where we see an inferiority complex, we find a superiority complex more or less hidden. See, it works both ways. Those who express superiority are often looked at as insecure or inferior or trying to compensate, right? It's that kind of view. But think of it the other way. Those who express inferiority, especially in cases where it's obvious that what they're doing is performative, those who express inferiority are often hiding a superiority complex, right? Just they don't want to come across as being obnoxious. Now listen to this from Aquinas Gordon, who's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Central Missouri. Quote, In a society that on the one hand espouses the virtues of humility, while also promoting self-importance, the inferiority complex emerges as one way that we try to reconcile these two disparate ideals. The problem is that this complex, which at first glance may appear to be aligned with humility, is primarily self-serving and has more to do with narcissism than with true humility. End quote. Listen to that last part again. The problem is that this complex, which at first glance may appear to be aligned with humility, is primarily self-serving and has more to do with narcissism than with true humility. This is why I take issue with the public use of the word humble. It's ridiculously transparent. American monk Radhanath Swami, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, contrasts inferiority to real humility. He says inferiority is when the ego is frustrated. Humility is when the ego is rejected. He says that inferiority is about appearances. In a society that glamorizes humility, the enactment of humility becomes more important than the true embodiment of it. Faux humility the aw-shucks, who-me approach to things, is when the ego is actually clicking on all cylinders and superiority is bubbling below the surface. You want to see a hidden superiority complex? You want to see where the ego is on fire? Look for the public use of the word humble. Watch for it. You won't be able to unsee it.
Look, no one's perfect, and I'm not trying to call any individual out here, and I'm not above this either, but it's something we all have to watch, and it might be a great way to sort of self-assess and take inventory on where our minds are. Again, to be clear, be grateful, be happy, be excited, be honored, be all of it. You should be. Post about it. Fantastic. There's enough sunshine out there for everybody. So we should be happy for other people. We talked about that before. But watch the humbled posts. Because I can think of zero circumstances where posting about your humility is actually an act of humility. Let me finish with another quote from Aquinas Gordon. He writes, True humility doesn't seek happiness in the recognition of others, and in that way has no one to feel inferior to. Here today for the interview is Jennifer Abrams. Uh, Jennifer is an internationally recognized leader and expert on new teacher employee support, having hard conversations, collaboration skills, and being your best adult self at work. Jennifer presents at annual conferences both in North America, but also literally throughout the world. Her books include Having Hard Conversations, The Multi-Generational Workplace, Hard Conversations Unpacked, Swimming in the Deep End, and her latest book, Stretching Your Learning Edges, Growing Up at Work. Jennifer has been recognized as one of 21 women all K-12 educators need to know by Education Week's Finding Common Ground blog. So today we're going to focus on having difficult conversations and how we can ready ourselves for what is inevitably going to be an uncomfortable and sometimes awkward moment. So Jennifer, I want to welcome you to the Tom Schimmer podcast. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad you're here. It's great to reconnect. We connected years ago at a conference, and uh, this is a great excuse to reconnect with you and, and uh, talk about something that I think a lot of educators kind of, well, let's just say a lot of adults dread, which are those hard conversations that inevitably come up and we all try to figure out how to avoid them, and we can't avoid them. So we'll get into that as we go. But as we begin uh, today, I, I want to start with uh, a couple of things. First, uh, Walk us through the professional biography, right? You started as a high school English teacher in Palo Alto. Um, and then the second part is how did difficult conversations become an area of expertise and an area of focus? Yeah, um, I was a high school English teacher, as you just mentioned, in Palo Alto, California, here in the States for a decade. And I then went into new teacher coaching. So I, I spent 16 years in a public school system with new teacher coaching after my work in the classroom. And when I moved from the classroom into the central office or the school board, I learned how to coach, right? Because you have to learn how to do the work. But then I realized that beyond that, was really actually interesting. I have a credential in how to teach students the subject of English. I don't have a credential on how to talk effectively to adults. Nothing in my credential program got anywhere near that need for collaboration. And I also needed coaching. So I learned how to coach and then I was leading teams. And so I learned more about facilitation. Um, and that seemed to make sense, you know, as you're developing and working in the central office. 
Moving into uh, that role, though, was a moment where I noticed that I wanted to advocate for things, that I noticed there might be some things that were not being spoken of. And I kept thinking, I've got to learn how to speak up around what matters. And I looked in education and I laughed and I still kind of laugh because if there's anything around having hard conversations in education, it's how to deal with a difficult employee or a difficult parent. The other person is always difficult. And I thought, I'm not so sure that's true. I'm not so sure that's true. I'm actually wanting to stand on my side of the net and figure out how to find my voice around what matters and in a challenging moment. So that's where, as a coach, working with teachers, working with um, department heads, as well as principals, I realized we all needed to learn how to have our conversations. So I wrote myself a workbook. And that was like 12 years ago that, that I wrote that. And I've been. I've been thinking about it now for over a decade. Yeah. yeah. People still need to know how to have a hard conversation. They always seem to come up. That's for sure. And you bring up such a good point because we do always think that it's the other people that are being difficult. It's the other people that are getting in the way. And that's we right. may at times need to look in the mirror and realize that, that we might be the one that everyone right. else has to have a difficult conversation with as well. That's so how do I know that I'm just before we get into some scenarios, because I'm going to run some scenarios by you and, and, and just talk about how we might prepare for those conversations. But I'm thinking more generally right now, like, how do I know that I'm headed for a difficult conversation? And here's what I mean by that. It's, it's really easy to kind of get in our heads and, and, and make a meal out of every potential conversation, right? To, you know, these conversations often don't live up to the hype that we've created in our heads. So I'm wondering how I can separate the, uh, the yes, this is definitely going to be a difficult conversation from the ones that might be more of a figment of my imagination. How do I separate those two? So I think that we and me are our, our affective filter goes up. We get defensive in a lot of moments. Um, and it could be something that's really about a trigger in us. Um, it could be a pet peeve of ours. Um, so I always have to ask myself the question, is this educationally or professionally unsound? Is this um, physically unsafe? Hmm. Or is this emotionally damaging? And what's the severity of that? Has it been a pattern? And do I really want to say something because of that? So I then, if I kind of go through that kind of, you know, balancing it, has this happened before? Is it still educationally unsound? Is the kid still learning the two plus two is 10? Should I speak up? You know what I mean? Like, I, right. I think I need to say something in certain moments. Um, I then ask, and I apologize if you're hearing my, my lovely uh, state and city um, fire engines there. Um, <laughs> the, I then have to ask myself, and I think we'll talk about this later because it continues to be the, the thing. Is this something that we've all agreed to? Is this a norm that has been breached? Is this something that this person continually doesn't do? Maybe I do need to speak up about this because it's really been on the plate. We've agreed to it and it hasn't happened. And then I think I want to have the, the conversation. But for me, I always have to ask myself, 
is this really a problem or is this a pet peeve of mine? And how do I want to have this conversation? It doesn't really need to be a hard conversation. And I always, I have a set of questions in chapter three of the first book that really are for me a speed bump. They're just stop. Is this really a hard conversation? Have you thought about, and if you're going to say yes, have you thought about the timing of it? Have you thought about the language of it? Have you thought about whether you've had clarity around it? Have you talked about the doability? And it just keeps you thinking and you finally go, you know what? This doesn't need to happen. This was all my pet peeve. You know what I mean? Or this is just all on me. Or I think I need to go back and clear. So there's so many things that I think need to happen in your head when everybody wants to just do ready, fire, they're wrong, blah, 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 blah. And so I I want you to pause and ask yeah. yourself some of those questions. Yeah, that's a... You know, it's always good advice, it seems, to to pause and think through. The the questions themselves are great questions, but the fact that you're you're actually going through that whole process really does cause you to pause and take inventory on where you are with that conversation. It it just seems like whenever you emotionally respond in the moment. It, it can backfire so easily on you. And, and uh, so I appreciate the idea of just thinking through whether or not I really need to, to have this conversation, or is it something that with 24 hours, with 48 hours may, may have passed. So I want to walk you through some scenarios and, and have you provide some advice on, on how we can prepare ourselves for these difficult conversations, right? So I want to talk first I want to talk first about difficult conversations where the power balance is tilted away from you, right? So you're a classroom teacher. You've you've gone, let's just assume that you've gone through the protocols you were talking about, that you've gone through the questions yep. and you've thought it through 48 hours. Yep, I need to have this conversation. Maybe you're, you're a classroom teacher and your principal said something publicly at a faculty meeting, or you're a principal and you need to have an uncomfortable conversation with your superintendent, right? So what are some ways when the power balance is tilted away from you, what are some ways that we can prepare ourselves to have that conversation with that person who is, I suppose, up the chain of command, to put it that way? So I know people get really anxious about this. Because who are you to have this conversation? This is your boss. Right. I actually think if you know that this was educationally or professionally unsound or emotionally damaging to you, to the team, you really do want to have that conversation because you are speaking on behalf of the district, the board, the team. And when you do that, you need to do some planning. And I ask people to consider when they're going to have a hard conversation up, and I'll talk about the planning of the conversation and then the scripting of it. When sure. you're going to plan that conversation up, what do you want to talk about? Do you know what you want to say? in a humane and growth producing way. What's the challenge? Can you shape that? Can you frame it? Then, and this is what's really bothersome to some people because they just get really anxious about this. The person that you're talking to, your superior, your boss is probably going to ask you, well, what do you want me to do differently? What do you think we should do instead? 
and you should have some suggestions. And I have people who are like, I can't tell my boss what to do. They're the boss. And I say, I promise you that they're going to say, and what do you think we should do about it? What do you think I should have done differently? And for you to be more successful, you need to have some suggestions. Notice that I've actually said the word suggestion. I've not said expectation, demand, here's how it should have gone. This is what you should have done. This is how it should go. I think that you should offer them as suggestions or recommendations or ideas because there is that power dynamic. Should you have some ideas? The answer is yes. Should you offer them in a way that's suggestive and honoring of the other person's position? Yes. But people forget that they should bring the suggestion because I can't tell them what to do. They're the supervisor. And I will let you know that chances are in those moments, they too will seek out and then maybe modify your suggestions, but they will seek your ideas and you have a greater likelihood of getting your idea across if you have an idea. Right. <laughs> and I know that that's <laughs> right. weird. But you can't just go, I just think they're going to know. I just need to tell them that wasn't okay. And they'll figure it out. I, I don't think that's as growth producing as, as we possibly fear I, or, or believe. I just think we need to have some ideas. Yeah. You know, as somebody who has worked in both school administration at the district level as well, I think, you know, the vast majority, I mean, there, there is always the possibility that someone has malicious intent, but the vast majority... Right have made the decision to act in a certain way because they think that was the most favorable course of action. So right. the idea of them having a, a Rolodex or a file, you know, in their head full of different responses, I, I think is, is a reach. And I love the suggestion, the idea of coming with a suggestion or helping, because as a leader, you, you want to be able to grow. You want to understand, maybe you're not aware of how, what you said impacted people or, or, or how it influenced the, the morale. Uh, of of the faculty, so I think that's that's great advice. And what about in the other direction? What about mm -hmm. when the power balance is kind of tilted in your favor? So now you're the principal, and of course you have positional authority. And maybe a faculty member at a staff meeting was offside, or or you know the same mm -hmm. idea. You're the superintendent, and you've got to have a conversation with the principal. And it, obviously. The easiest thing to do in those situations is just lean on your title and have the conversation in a way. But how do you approach that conversation when the power balance is in your favor without just leveraging your professional or positional authority? How do you go about that? I, I would say two things. Well, yeah, <laughs> I would do the exact same thing that I just mentioned for having a hard conversation up. Um, I would plan it and I would presume positive intent, just like you mentioned, and say, I want to think this through. What is the problem I want to talk to this person about? And have I been clear about the expectations before I have this conversation? Because hard conversations, I think we jump into hard conversations when we could have clarifying conversations. If you are the principal, and you're like, that person is just not on board with this initiative. I will say, raise your right hand and swear to me that you were clear about what the expectations were. 
that they had training, that they have it in writing, that you know that they are, from your opinion, willfully dis just disregarding, you know, all of this stuff. And if you cannot raise your right hand and swear to me that all of that clarity has been there, then you need to have a clarifying conversation. When you then go, no, Jennifer, she was at every single workshop. She went to everything and she isn't doing it. Then you can have a hard conversation. But then I'm even going to push you and say, what would it look like and sound like if she was more successful? I want you to paint a picture for yourself because the person will say to you, well, what, what do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. And I don't have the, and you're going to need to do that. Those two things, have you been humane and really been clear with the person? And mm -hmm. are you growth producing and painting a picture and providing support to help that person? Those two things help you not lean on your positional power, but put you in a humane and growth producing space. Because if you weren't there, and a new principal came in, they would have to have the same conversation. And we want to do it in a, in a growth uh, path. Um, people will say to me, I can't believe I have to spoon feed. I'm not spoon feeding this adult who should know better. And I will say, do you want to be right or effective? Right. And, and how would you like to support this person? Because you're not trying to lean on that, but you're being the instructional leader. Right. So promise me you've done all that. And then, and then you're not leaning on the position. You just happen to be in the position that has authority, but you are there to support on behalf of the kids. Jumping to conclusions seems to be a, a habit that many of us form, right? And, and the idea that it probably would be a good idea to have those clarifying conversations with students as well, right? Because they may not have been clear on directions or expectations. And, you know, we in our mind think we were clear and, and maybe we were. But at the same time, there are times where things get lost in translation and, and, and having those clarifying conversations because we we may be jumping to conclusions overreacting and and the idea what i'm what i'm hearing you say throughout these scenarios so far is that no matter how difficult these conversations are that our goal is to really emerge having grown from the experience and i think that's such a powerful mindset to bring into a conversation that is going to be awkward it, it and, and and uncomfortable but it really does put an interesting focus on the conversation which is we're both going to come out of this stronger and and having grown from this experience you know i will have grown having initiated a conversation that i felt was really uncomfortable and you will grow because together we're going to help reshape that experience is that a, a way to kind of summarize it or i think that's absolutely very true i think that when i say that it's not having hard conversations it's having humane and growth producing conversations mm -hmm. Yeah, I love then that. people say, okay, okay. And I say, and for some people, they have to work on the humane because <laughs> they just <laughs> want, they want to just say, you're a terrible teacher. This is just not working. And, and they're very uh, too vague, kind of snarky about it. And then other people are like, oh no, I'm totally like going to make sure that I worry. I want to, but I'm then going to pussyfoot around stuff and mm -hmm. I'm not growth producing. I'm not growth producing because I don't feel 
comfortable saying things. And at that mm -hmm. point, without clarity, um, you're not going to get anywhere. So a, a, an HR colleague and I were on the phone this morning and she said, I just thought that when I told this particular colleague that he should be more present at the meetings, he would just pick that up. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at her like, well, what does that mean? Like, has he been falling asleep? Has he been? And she goes, well, he's actually on the internet buying things. And I said, well, there you go. I don't think that would have even crossed my mind when you said be present because right. it's so what, you know, and she goes, well, I guess people noticed and that's what he's been doing. And I said, then that's what you have to say. Being present means you're not buying things on Zappos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and she's like, <gasps> it's just, and I'm like, I think if he's already there and he's doing it, naming it, don't be loud, just be specific is going to be okay. You know? Yeah. And she's like, okay. But those are the two things. And I think it's about growth. I think it's about making sure that we want the next step and not to think this is going to fracture the whole thing, or I'm already, I'm having a hard conversation where I'm firing somebody. That shouldn't yeah. be the first time that right. you're having this conversation. There should have been many growth producing conversations along. Right. Why? Um, I'm wondering, uh, uh, is it is it uh, arrogance or insecurity that leads people to take a kind of authoritative approach and use their positional authority to just sort of short circuit these conversations? And I'm the boss and this is the way. What do you think? I, I, maybe it's a combination of both. Uh, I'm just sort of imagining that maybe it's an arrogance, maybe it's an insecurity. I, you know, what what leads us to uh, for some of us to use our positional authority to just leverage that and get people to do what, what they're told to do. My immediate one, my immediate thought is arrogance, but I wouldn't frame it that way. I, okay. I think frustration, I think also it's a lot of work Fair. to do what I'm looking <laughs> to do. And I yeah. remember talking to uh, an administrator who, when I posed these questions, like what exactly have you had a clarifying conversation? Have you, have you framed the problem? Is it on their plate? What are the specifics? I'm a busy person. I don't have a lot of time to be thinking this through. The other adult should just already know better. And I said, but they're not. So let's, okay. Well, I just still don't have that much time. And I said, and that's an arrogance piece because this is, or, or a mm, denial. So I said, how long have you had the problem? And he said, two years. So this person has been not doing whatever for the children, for the team. So I said, do you think that you've spent 20 minutes in the last two years venting, having a drink with somebody on a Friday afternoon, talking about this in a meeting with your supervisor or with your team or with a complaining somebody. 20 minutes, maybe not in a row, but 20 minutes have been used to not deal with this. When you need to put 20 minutes of brain work around it in this way, it's kind of tiring in a different way. And so I think it's, I think it's just, it, it might not be arrogance. It's just frustration. And I just, I didn't know I was here for the kids and I'm really going to have to learn how to grow the adults. And that is yeah. new and it's, it hurts. It, it hurts my brain. It hurts mm -hmm. my brain. 
Well, it, it makes you wonder, you know, what is leadership if it is not leading uh, the individuals, the the teachers, if it's not being that leader and having those conversations, then what exactly are you leading if we're not engaged in that in that in those growth opportunities? Um, now, third scenario, uh, and, and I don't know if you have any sort of twists or, or slight differences, but the third scenario would be where there is no uh, power tilted one way or the other. This is a colleague, no positional authority. Uh, they're the same level of experience. You know, we're in a department meeting, um, and and they've been overly critical of a colleague, or they've done something. They've kind of crossed a line, and and I have to have this uh, difficult or or challenging conversation. Uh, that that you know maybe they were a little harsh, uh, and I have to sort of you know bring that bring that conversation to the forefront. But I don't really. I'm I'm not I'm not their boss. Um, I'm not in there, uh, they're not my supervisor, we're just colleagues. How do, how do we approach that conversation? I, I'm gonna go back to clarity around norms, number one. Okay. That we have agreed that this is how we work effectively together. Okay, so, so that's already should be on the table and that we are there to help each other. Now, when somebody crosses the line, I wouldn't, I don't think go to exactly the depth that I was mentioning uh, in these other conversations. I might have what I would call a quick script conversation or a, even a one-liner conversation. And I'll talk about those or a one word conversation. Okay. And um, I call those sort of seize the moment. And I have people that say they're, they're just nauseated thinking about even having a three sentence conversation. But mm -hmm. do you think what just happened was emotionally damaging or professionally unsound? Then if that is the truth, then you have to say something. You could say, what, and this is to them individually, right. when you said this, this is how I felt. It'd be really helpful if you could do this instead takes three, three seconds, takes eight seconds, actually. And I have been my not best self in a situation. I rolled my eyes. I made a face. I was totally rude. And my friend, Melissa came up to me and said, you know, when you, I'm sorry, I didn't have that sheet, but when you rolled your eyes and you made a face, it was really disrespectful. And it would be just, I'll, just, if you have a challenge with something, could you just let me know privately? And, you know, and that would be just helpful. Thank you. And she was absolutely in the right. And I looked at her and I said, you're right. I apologize. And she said, thank you. And it was separate, but it was a short conversation. Now, if I had done something and she wanted to be even faster on the uptake, she could have said to me, ouch. Or that stung. Mm -hmm. Or um, that made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Or I, I disagree. Or that wasn't cool. And those things actually can be said, and maybe they're easier for some people. Um, and so my colleague said she does ouch, because that at least stops the person right there in the moment that there had been a line that had gone over, like you had been too obnoxious or snarky. And I had a group that they were the owls. That was the name of their, uh, their mascot. And so they brought a, an, an owl to the meeting and they named the owl Norm. This is a true story, I'm not kidding. And when somebody crossed the line, somebody would just go, ooh, ooh. And that was their signal that that was not cool. 
And I know that if there was a dragon or there was a leopard, you're not going to go, you know, because that's just going to continue to exacerbate it. But it was that idea of we need to call each other on each other's stuff. And if that's already in the, in the air to just say, Hey, that was a little, little, uh, like you could have said offsides. Like you mentioned that. I assume you're a big hockey. That's cool. (laughs) Any kind of code. No, my brother's the game announcer for the Minnesota Wild. So I, oh, wow. you know, so, um, but it's that kind of stuff that I think we need to talk about because we need to be grown ups at work. Right. And that's right. The, the difference between public and private, I'm thinking about, you know, these, these immediate reactions where you say, ouch, or that was offside or that right. stung, that's obviously going to be, if I'm at a department meeting, that's going to be very public. Whereas right. often we would have these conversations in private. So how do I know, how, how might I know when to have it public versus private, uh, even assuming we've got the norms established and, and we know that this is ahead of time been established that we're going to call each other on our sort of offside behavior. How, how would I, when, when would I make the decision to maybe save it for after the meeting or privately? Um, I think for me, it's more almost about how egregious that moment was, how Mm -hmm. comfortable I feel um, um, sharing that in front of the whole group. Is it Mm -hmm. really increasing the safety to say something for the whole group. Has it happened twice or three times in that? And I wanna speak on behalf of the group. Um, Is this somebody that is going to just be angrier uh, if I call them out and then be worse in front of the group? And so I wanna to deal with that person individually. I think it's just a, it's choices about my courage in the moment, my knowing the whole group, my knowing that person. Um, I've met people that they will exacerbate if they're called out in front of the group. They'll, they're, they feel shamed um, as opposed to, you're right, that's cool, sorry, my bad. You know, I mean, and then sort of be able to, to manage it. So, and I also think like, have you modeled, has anybody called you on it in front of the whole group? And you've modeled that this is how we respond. Um, I don't know, you know, yeah. I think it really depends, but that's a, I just know that she, she spoke to me individually. Mm-hmm. And that was that moment. I think depends on how clear the norms have been, I would maybe go individual with specific people who I'm very concerned will not take it well. I think that, you know, make, as you were responding there, I was kind of thinking the same thing, which is, you know, one, what is their past practice or, or do I know what's my relationship with them? How do, how have they responded, you know, when they've been called out publicly, will it, will it make it worse? Will it be volatile? How, exactly. Right. And, and so knowing your colleagues would, would help you in understanding that, you know, big picture here, this might be something to address after the fact as opposed to uh, during. So yeah, some great advice, uh, Jennifer, certainly. Uh, I think there's, you know, thinking through, um, I know that in, in, my both my personal and professional life, you know, whenever difficult conversations come up and and they and you have them and you work through them, 
you always come out the other end feeling stronger with greater perspective, uh, feeling as though these are, these are not as big a deal as they, you might've made them out to be in your head. So I, I really appreciate that. I want to pivot now to, uh, as we sort of finish up, uh, talking a little bit about your latest book, um, which is sort of in various stages of, of being out. The e-copies e are out, but it's in print and so listeners, you'll, it, it's, you know, at some point you'll be able to access it in, in, in many ways, but um, stretching your learning edges, growing up at work. So um, I think we all need to grow up at work, <laughs> uh, but the book, as you say, is organized around five uh, facets of personal and professional growth. So what are they and, and how do we all grow up at work? So um, the, the, the grow up at work, growing up at work, I don't want it to sound diminishing. That's, <laughs> that's okay. Because yeah. like, grow up, okay. No. It's, it's sort of a, a cheeky take on that, yeah. but it's really about how we can develop as adults and the benefit of our personal development really supporting the collective. Mm -hmm. And um, that I've noticed that, as I mentioned previously, we don't have credentials in how to talk effectively to adults. Yet the research, the John Hattie research, the Brake and Schneider research, the Hargraves mm -hmm. and O'Connor research, the PLC research, is really that the collective, when we work together, can increase student achievement. And it's really shown that if we do it well, it really has a much greater likelihood to do that. But we all know that we as individuals show up for that team meeting, right? Mm -hmm. We are the collective. And sometimes we are not as grown up as we could be. <laughs> and <laughs> I started with myself. When my father passed away three years ago, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm the elder. I have to be the adult, like I better grow up. And so these five facets, uh, I think are places where I've noticed we need to, to grow ourselves and it's not an indulgence. It's really important that we focus on human development, not just child development. One is in knowing our identity. Uh, our identities, knowing our biases, our limitations, how our our past influences are present and our work in teams. Uh, one is to be able to suspend certainty, to not just be an advocate, but to inquire, to recognize we don't know it all and to suspend certainty and to say, hmm, what am I missing? Um, and to do it with um, the, I mean, one of the other facets is with a sense of resilience, to build our resilience, to really go, okay, that is new and that was painful to hear or this isn't something I'm aware of and I need to grow and ooh, I'm not gonna feel so wounded by that or defensive in response to that, but I'm gonna build up my stomach and my bandwidth to uh, be able to engage this way. Um, so there's, yeah, so know your identity, uh, suspend certainty, build resiliency. And then the, the, the fourth is take responsibility. Take responsibility, not just for your work product, but for how you talk to other people, which is if you have to ask for help, how do you seek clarification in focused and agile ways, not to complain that the other person is just, I don't even understand what they're doing, but to seek out the, the clarification um, and to, if you have a, 
if you have a concern, stay in a place of concern before you even head to complaint. Right. You know, concerning a blade are different and um, how to have a hard conversation. And that all really extends to this whole fifth facet, which is engage in reciprocity. And to engage in reciprocity means that you are a part of a team of adults and they are a part of yours and you are a value add to them and they are a value add to you and that you need to build up your skill set to be able to do that in mutually respectful ways with all the adults that you work with. Mm -hmm. That type of growing up is something that I didn't learn as I was inducted into the profession. And I was, as I said, talking to a, a colleague in HR today who was like, and the veteran colleagues that are really challenging sometimes don't have those skill sets. And so this book is got self-assessments and continuums and self-talk and exercises and videos and text readings about those five pieces that I think are really about what it means to be a professional and right. to engage as a collaborative professional with each other. Yeah. What well, what do you mean by <clears throat> your your identity? What do, what what do you mean by know my identity? How what what does that look like? So I I've used an identity circle uh, in my work where you show up in your role, but all of you shows up. Uh, your race, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, your gender. Okay your uh, your uh, country of origin, your country, your host country, if you're not in the same country, your um, whether you're married, whether you have caregiving uh, um, obligations, uh, your socio um, socioeconomic status, your English, uh, as a second or additional language, or are you um, an English speaker and you're working in an English speaking school? All of that arrives. And sometimes we're blind to how those facets or pieces of us or dimensions of our identities impact our teaching or our collaboration. We think, well, isn't everybody like this or isn't everybody like that? And I just, I, no. And I think working um, in international schools made me very much wake up to the fact that I was a U.S. citizen. Uh, when I'm in the U.S., I'm very much reminded that I'm from California. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when, I'm in a, um, when I'm in a room, I will also notice uh, that I am white. I am a woman. I am, you know, and how does that play out in the dynamics of my teaching, my facilitation. I'm working with a British school in Taipei on Wednesday night. I am a U.S. citizen from California in, you know, and how, you know, they were raised in, you know, in England or in the UK, they're working in Taipei. I'm phoning in literally from the US. How is all of that playing? And to even know that it is playing, I think for some people is hugely not a part of the, no, I'm teaching math. What are you talking about? I don't need to, the answer is, yeah, it is actually showing up and it's showing up in teams. And as we're working 
in the US and I think also in Canada um, and many other places in the world uh, to confront systemic inequities, to look at issues of race and inclusion and belonging. That's a conversation that we need to be having with ourselves, not just in, in teams. Yeah, for sure. The um, All of those different aspects of our identity and how they contribute to the conversations and that level of awareness just having the awareness around just yourself is also the surroundings with whom you are engaged in conversation can be a, a, a big part of that for sure. I'm also wondering about reciprocity. And it, you, you make me think of someone who's early in their career who may be working, say, within a department or a grade level team where they're surrounded by veterans. You know, they're, they're, there's, there's 15, 20 year veteran teachers, and I'm in my third year. Um, and, and you say, you know, I've add value, they add value to me. How do we, how does that, does that balance out? Does rest, does it, is there real reciprocity in that situation? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, I would start with, and it'd be tricky if you, as the third year teacher were saying, I think we need to engage in reciprocity. If they <laughs> have never, if they've never had a conversation amongst themselves, regardless of a third year teacher coming in, that they need to have the, the skills and capacities to be really effective group members with each other. Mm -hmm. So are we listening to each other? Are we uh, seeking um, support from each other? Are we asking questions that trust in the uh, capacity of other people so that we're supporting each other's development? Are we offering suggestions and not, um, this is what I think you should do um, mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And does the team engage in the in reciprocity, meaning they believe that the others are a value add to them and they're a value add. And then the third year colleague can maybe feel more equal. Okay. Um, that is a tricky situation. And I would um, suggest people go to the multi-generational workplace because people <laughs> are like, people, I mean, and it's just a silly, uh, cheeky uh, answer, but I am 54. And I found out today that 40 people are uh, retiring from my district for a variety of reasons. They won't hire as many because of monies and all that. But that probably I'm gonna guess is 30 new teachers are coming in. That is a shift in culture. Yeah. That is a shift in conversation. And so if we engage in reciprocity, those added individuals will be brought on board and inducted into a culture where that is the conversation. We all learn from each other, this younger, person who's 24, 30 years younger than me, is a value add to me and I can be a value add to them to bring them into the culture I know. But that's tricky dynamics and status and um, hmm, there's just the need, there's just so much, we could go in, it, it, this could go on for forever. I could go into this car <laughs> model with you. I could right. go into. Well, we'll have you back. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into that another <laughs> next time we have you on Jennifer, that's for sure. You know, you make me think about um, it being incumbent upon the veteran teachers to actively create that environment where, where you look at the, the third year teacher and you purposefully ask them for their input and you create a that's habit right. around that conversation. So they do feel 
because the easiest, they feel valued because the easiest thing for all of the veteran teachers to do is just sit around and say, just, just listen, you know, we've been through it before and, and be sort of dismissive and, and marginalizing that, that newer teacher when in fact they may have a lot to contribute about uh, from their, from their experience as well. I want to finish up today with um, just, just teachers in general. Most educators I know are incredibly tough on themselves. Um, and, and certainly during COVID, this has been a time where, you know, the general public has been at times very supportive of educators and at times incredibly tough on the expectations yeah. for educators. The external demands, though, rarely come close, from my experience, they rarely come close to matching the internal expectations that teachers have of themselves. So what are some ways strategies, mindsets, what are some ways teachers can go easy on themselves to know that, yes, there, there is still much to be done, but, but there, there has been much accomplished. Like how, how do we, what are some ways teachers can just take it easy on themselves and not be so hard on them themselves around expectations? I, I think that we do not celebrate what's working as much as, and this is human nature, Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, what's working as opposed to noticing what's wrong. Okay. So I want people to celebrate at least, I mean, when I'm coaching them, you know, what are five amazing things that, that you contributed to, you were present, you sent an email, you, uh, you know, we're right there to help this one particular person. You wrote a thank you note, something about you need to celebrate the good. I have a tendency not to celebrate the good and to um, do a pat on the back. But I also know that in self-assessments, I need to say to myself, have I demonstrated personal regard for people? Yeah, I have. Good. That's contributed to the culture. Have I demonstrated a, a show of integrity and really shown up as best I can? Yep, that's good for the community. Have I, as best I can, learned how to be competent in this new place called online hybrid instruction that I sure as heck 10 months ago didn't have a clue about? Yep. Mm -hmm then you've contributed. And so sort of pat on the back around stuff and to self-assess with celebration. And I don't, and I often know people are hard on themselves, but I almost, and I'm loving that as we're concluding, they're going to start to do, um, you know, do uh, stuff outside my window. So thank God we're <laughs> ready. Here we go. It's um, all good. It's all good. But just to do a quick celebration, yay me, pat on the back. 10 things that went really well today. Yeah. And I bet you'll find them and they don't have to be big. So right. that's what I have right. to do myself. And maybe yeah, I need to be <laughs> <Hey, you. laughs> that's, right. that's right. It's um it is it is hard for people who have committed their careers to serving others, right? Uh, when you've got um, teachers who've committed their lives to to teaching other people's children. It's hard to to look at ourselves and celebrate the successes uh, when we're always striving because there is no perfect. Perfect is unattainable, and yet teachers so so often put that kind of pressure on themselves. Uh, great, it, you know, a fascinating conversation, Jennifer. And and as I said, I think that um, that the the growing up, which I, I love the cheekiness of the title and listeners, you'll see in the title that up is in parentheses. So it's, it's not 
you need to grow up. It's not a, a, a juvenile attack or, or attack on, on the juvenile nature. It is us growing up. I think we'll, we'll have to have you back to talk a little bit about those facets uh, more. But we're going to finish up today uh, with a, a segment I call three questions. I'm going to ask you three fun questions. Take them where okay. you want to go. It gives people a chance to get to know you a little bit. And then I've got one final question as we wrap up today. So here's the first one. It's a would you rather. Would you rather stub your toe or get a paper cut? Uh, stub my toe. Stub your toe. Okay. Any particular reason you made that choice? Because that will be over sooner and I will, and the paper cuts are always on my fingers and right. I will, I will have to neosporin in it and I'll just, I'll see it. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't want to see it. I'd rather swear, 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 hold it. And then it just, it's just going to be easy. It's just easier. It's less painful in the end. More in the pain. long run, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. Because there is nothing quite like the pain of stubbing your toe on one of the four posts of your bed. That That is next level it. pain. <laughs> I hate it. I hate that's it. I hate right. it. I hate it. But it, it, then I swear and I then it's over pretty right. fast. That's, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Second, second question. Uh, what's your favorite movie genre? What movies do you love? Oh, probably dramas. But then okay. you're going to ask about my favorite drama or something, and I'm not going to be able to give you an answer right now. But I <laughs> How would about say, one of them? Oh, God. One? Old movies, older movies, fine movie, Terms of Endearment, um, yeah. Ed Poet Society, things like that. I'm, I'm, yeah, those are some of the older movies. But I, I mean, the minute I get off this call, you're, I'm going to go, oh, why didn't I say oh, this? Why didn't I say this? Good. You know, Dead Poet Society. Let's let's not call that an old movie, just so that we're not. <laughs> yeah, they're you know, like yeah. take it easy on the old movies. There, uh... <laughs> I was going to get my master's in education. Yeah, the summer yeah. that I think I saw that movie. So it but just I... came out when I was twenty-two. So it's. It's 32 years old. I know, I, I know. It is hard to believe those movies from the the early 90s, uh, you know, are, are 30 years ago and uh, it's incredible. Uh, last yeah. question here, fiction or nonfiction, you can pick. What book do you wish you had written? Middlemarch. Oh, okay, tell us about Middlemarch. that. I'm not familiar. By, by George Eliot. I really, I was Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a an epic 800 page um book. I was an English major. Um by yeah, by George Eliot in which she goes into a a village and just over it's like a it's like a a, a soap opera and she's so generous for so long about each one of these people. And I mean, it's like Dickensian. I mean, it's just all of these, these people. And I got sucked into it. And the idea that she was so generous and understanding of all of those people is just, I would like to have been her. Interesting. So, yeah. I've, I've never read the book. I, I may have to pick that up. Uh, 800 pages, probably going to take me three years to read it. But yeah, uh, I hey. don't worry. But my, <laughs> my immediate thought is just she was, she got you in. It was political. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. intimate. It was, it was amazing. Fantastic. I don't know. I was a nerd at that time. So I, I read it. <laughs>
<laughs> Love that. All right. One final question. Uh, certainly uh, I've asked all uh, guests on the podcast about the question about success and happiness. Uh, and the question, as I always ask is this, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would say I was a success if I made, if, if my work stayed, made a difference and I slept at night knowing that I was um, doing good work in the world. So mm -hmm. that's success is sleeping at night and knowing that I made a difference to, to others. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and certainly being able to sleep at night, uh, both, uh, you know, specifically and and maybe metaphorically is yes. is a is a is a great way to think about you know the the idea of success and, and how that translates into what we've accomplished both professionally and and personally. I yeah. I, I certainly yeah. appreciate that. Listeners, you should definitely follow Jennifer on Twitter. Uh, her Twitter handle is at Jennifer Abrams. On Instagram, it's at Jennifer Beth Abrams. You can follow Jennifer also on Facebook and LinkedIn, Jennifer Abrams, both on Facebook and LinkedIn. And Jennifer's website is www.jenniferabrams.com. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to next time. Thank you. Today in Assessment Corner, I'm going to focus on constructed response items. Now, many of you will remember back in February, I talked about multiple choice and selected response in general. So I wanna talk a little bit about constructed response and specifically at the end about extended written responses. I'm gonna do this in two parts, uh, a little bit of the research up front here and at the end I'll have some suggestions for you. First, it's important to know that item response format does not automatically lead to different learning outcomes. In other words, just because you create an extended written response item, that doesn't mean you're getting to deeper learning. The cognitive complexity of the learning and the depth of thinking required by the student, that's what's going to determine that. We use different response formats for different purposes, and there's a huge difference between what we can do or what we should do or what we have time for. When I talk about assessment methods, people often want to argue back or push the point, you know, Tom, you can assess deeper learning through multiple choice, but that's not really in the argument. We all know that you can. Of course you can. The real question is whether you should and whether you have the time to create such questions. That's easy to say, oh, I can assess deeper learning through multiple choice. But as I talked about before, I'm not sure the average teacher has the time nor the expertise to consistently create such questions. It's not a slight, you know, it's not a dig. It's just a question of whether or not you wanna spend that amount of time formulating a handful of questions. Now, according to Michael Rodriguez and Thomas Haladina, the quality of teacher-made selected response items depends on three things. First, it depends on the clarity of the learning objectives. Two, it depends on teacher's subject matter expertise. And three, it depends on their item writing ability. So of course, the upside of multiple choice, we talked before, it's more reliable as there is a singular correct answer. There's no calibration on criteria required because we know what the correct answer is. If there are multiple correct answers, then you really do have a poorly designed question, especially for the K-12 context. Not in professional settings, not in certification settings, but definitely for the K-12 context, having one clear correct answer. So if you have multiple correct answers on your multiple choice question, then multiple choice is probably a poor choice in terms of format. Now the upside of constructed response, of course, is you get a more thorough, detailed response from students. 
you get more evidence of student thinking and the process used to actually develop their response, okay? Now, selected response and constructed response items can assess the same constructs. And when that's the case, we might actually question whether or not constructed response is a, is a good choice because the scoring of constructed response items is far more time consuming and often more costly. According to uh, Rodriguez and Haladina, when selected response and constructive response are not content equivalent, then the use of both on the same assessment or the same measure would be questionable. So the first recommendation I would make would be to only use constructive response when the content or the cognitive demand is not easily assessed through selected response. Now, according to Thomas Hogan, Constructed response provides the widest range of response formats. Think of it as a continuum, right? From short and simple to long and extended. So you have, you know, fill in the blank to a brief written assignment to a project in a portfolio, right? So there's a continuum. The point is, again, to make sure that the cognitive demand and the quality warrant a constructed response item, such that you are, in fact, eliciting a more sophisticated demonstration of learning. There's some interesting research also that emerged in the early 2000s from Christine DeMars about how boys and girls performed on high stakes tests. This was interesting. These were high school students in Michigan, and it was in science and mathematics. And what the research showed was that boys on average scored higher than girls on selected response items, while girls scored higher than boys on constructed response items. Now, there is also some research, and albeit this research is primarily at the college level, the university level, maybe a little bit at the high school level, not, not very much research at the primary levels, the elementary levels, et cetera, even middle school. But there is some research that suggests that students prepare differently for different formats. Now, when they're expecting constructed response items, they study primarily for organization. But when selected response is the prioritized format, they study more for detail. So to summarize Hogan's synthesis of the research on constructed response, he would say these three things. One, students study differently depending on test format expectations. Two, the mode of testing does not make a difference to the degree of learning, and we talked about that earlier. And that three, format does interact with student characteristics and gender, which he says is the primary reason to think about even mixing the formats. So if you are assessing the same cognitive demand or the same constructs, we would be wise to include both selected response and constructed response items on the assessment to balance out some of those student characteristics. You want to make sure that the format is worth it. There's no point in using constructed response if the learning can be seamlessly assessed through selected response. There's no advantage there. I know that selected response or multiple choice is a four-letter word these days, but being assessment literate means understanding the strengths and limits of each format. For me, we need to spend less time fussing and pontificating about the format and more time making sure that the quality of the task or the quality of the prompt is on point. If you don't want to use multiple choice or selective response, fine, don't use it, but then create a task that elicits far more sophisticated evidence than just recall or procedures. Because in the end, if you're using constructed response for recall or procedural type questions, you're actually wasting valuable class time using that format. Using constructive response just for the sake of using constructive response is short-sighted. And simply, you know, rejecting multiple choice because large-scale assessments use multiple choice, that, that again is very short-sighted and a ridiculous reason to, re to reject any assessment format. So 
We want the formats to be conducive to the promise of what we're after. Use constructed response when the cognitive demand is so high that multiple choice just falls short of eliciting the kind of evidence that we're looking for. Now I wanna spend a moment here finishing up talking about extended written response items and specifically share with you some recommendations from my mentors, friends, colleagues, Jan Shapui and Rick Stiggins. When developing a constructed response or an extended written response item, Jan and Rick recommend we do three things. One, set the context. Two, tell the students what to describe or explain. And three, point the way to an appropriate response. So let's go through each of those. First, we set the context. And that might sound something like this. We've been studying the inheritance and variation of traits through heredity. Okay, now don't worry about remembering this. I'm gonna put this all together for you in a moment, but that's how we would set the context. Second, we tell the students what to describe or what to explain. So it might sound something like this. Based on your understanding, make and defend the claim that inherited genetic traits can and do vary. And then third, Jan and Rick suggest we point the way to an appropriate response. So we might say something like, be specific in your descriptions and be sure to include how variations can occur through meiosis, how errors in replication occur, and the source of various mutations. So if we were to put that all together into a singular prompt, it would sound like this. We've been studying the inheritance and variation of traits through heredity. Based on your understanding, make and defend the claim that inherited genetic traits can and do vary. Be specific in your descriptions and be sure to include how variations can occur through meiosis, how errors in replication occur, and the source of various mutations. Okay, now for, for many of you, that might sound like a lot, but it's important that students are pointed in the right direction. You're not giving away the answer. You're pointing them to what a correct response would include. We really have to start breaking ourselves free of this assessment as trickery mentality. And again, I'm not saying this is a diabolical intent, but there's just always a part of us that thinks we're giving it away or we're secretly doing too much and the students have to hack their way through our assessments to figure out what the correct answers might include. So find your balance there. It's, it's pointing them in the direction of a, of a correct response or what to include in a correct response without giving away the actual answer to the question. So when I look at assessments, which I'm often asked to do when I work with schools and school districts, I often find that with selected response, multiple choice, there's often too much information in the question stem and it becomes a little bit confusing to the student as to which part is relevant to the choices that are presented. I find the opposite with constructed response items, right? I often find there's not enough information in the prompt to really point the students in the direction of what a correct, uh, correct response would include. So those are some things to think about, you know, set the context, tell what you have to describe, and then point them to an appropriate response. Few other things to think about from my perspective. Of course, the first question is, is there a more effective and efficient way for you to access the learning information you're seeking? If there is, then do it because constructive response is time consuming. It's time consuming for the students and it's time consuming for the teachers. Now, again, I don't wanna say that it's not important to use that method, but if you have a, a standard or a learning goal that can be easily assessed through selected response or constructive response, then you really are wasting time using constructed response, okay? So create a prompt that reaches that higher level or that deeper uh, demonstration of learning. 
Now, the second piece I would suggest is you think about the rubric or the success criteria that you're using and how it's going to be applied. If you're using the same rubric as always, then make sure that the students are familiar with any shifts in emphasis. You know, if you're if you're really looking at a particular aspect of quality in this particular response, make sure they're aware of that. Otherwise, just use the same criteria you've always used. If you're using a different rubric or different criteria, then maybe, well, I shouldn't say maybe, make sure that you identify the differences between the criteria, the rubric that's familiar to them and the one that is now unfamiliar, okay? And then check your prompt to make sure that it's clear and thorough enough to avoid any confusion about what content to include in that response. Again, set the context, tell, uh, tell them what they need to describe and point them in the direction. Constructed response is complex to do it well. And really, if you wanna to get to the depth of thinking that, that we're trying to get students to, to reach, uh, that's where constructed response can really be an advantage, but it isn't as simple as just creating a, a singular prompt, maybe even a singular sentence. There are times, of course, where constructive response is essential, it's necessary. And when that's the case, thoughtfully designing the task or the criteria or the prompt goes a long way to ensuring that your constructed response items actually live up to their promise of assessing that which cannot or should not be assessed through selected response. Okay, as we close out today, a couple of reminders. Uh, first, the Achieve Institute coming virtually this August 16th through 18th. That's gonna feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. If you're interested in that event, uh, check out the link in the show notes, as well as you can head to solutiontree.com to get all the information about that event. And if you're interested in registering, all that's there as well. Would also encourage you to check out all the podcasts on the Teach Better Podcast Network. That's teachbetter.com slash podcast. Again, teachbetter.com slash podcast. Lots of great podcasts out there for you. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well. That's at Tom Shimmer. Uh, Twitter will be particularly important given the summer series that's coming up. I'm going to announce the topics very shortly and also look for some recommendations. So follow myself and the podcast Twitter account on Twitter so you can let me know if you or someone you know would be a great guest for one of the topics that we're going to explore. Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, lots of ways to connect. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel as well, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. You can also email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast to tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be my friend, my colleague, and co-author, Mandy Stolitz. Mandy is currently a high school math teacher, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation, honestly. Mandy is a practitioner's practitioner, so tune in for that conversation next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.